Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. Our guest on the podcast today is Pete Davis, a writer and civil advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. He works on civil projects aimed at deepening American democracy and solidarity. Pete is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy and is currently co-producing a documentary on the life and work of civil guru Robert Putnam. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times and has recently expanded into a book dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Welcome to the podcast. Pete Davis. I am so glad to be welcoming Pete Davis to this conversation today. A short while ago, Pete's new book called Dedicated, uh, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing, was recommended to me by another Christchurch member and actually uh, a podcaster on Chasing Faith, Mark Hurst. He recommended Pete's book to me. And I was immediately taken with it, thinking that he was addressing uh, a matter of of great consequence, actually, for our time. And uh, though he addresses the issue that he is working with from the point of view of millennials and his generation of being a millennial, my, my sense is that it has resonance across generations and is a concern for our moment in history, actually. I think it's a big deal what he's what he's trying to do. In 2018, Pete gave a commencement address for the Harvard Law School entitled A Counterculture of Commitment that's now been viewed over 30 million times. And, you know, evidently, he hit a nerve with his predisposition that our culture has us stuck in, quote, infinite browsing mode, unquote. He has, uh, he has an uncanny knack of humbly uncovering a lot of useful information along with a point of view that uh, resonates philosophically out of the great traditions of all of our Western learning. And I'm, I'm sort of struck by how well he has articulated his case in a language that is readily accessible and appropriatable, if I can use that as a word. Pete, thanks so much for being here. I'm so glad that you're willing to join this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Reverend. I'm so glad to be here on Chasing Faith. And let me uh, suggest that you call me Stephen or Steve, whichever of those you prefer, okay? I know Brandon, Brandon introduced me that way, but I'd prefer that if that's okay with you. Sounds great. <laughs> okay. So... Um, Pete, the way we normally begin these conversations is asking the uh, the interviewee to kind of introduce themselves in their own words, who they are, what they're about, and uh, and then I'm going to ask you about your own faith formation because we always begin with that angle in these conversations. 
Yeah, so I am Pete Davis. I'm a writer and civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, civic advocate's a strange word for uh, that you don't run it across often, but it basically means I do writing and advocacy around different civic causes, particularly around the themes of what I call deepening American democracy and deepening American solidarity. Uh, so that's a lot of writing and projects around extending more power to more people in more ways and also in figuring out ways we can rebuild community in America. Um, and that's what I've been, you know, working on for the last 10 years and plan to do uh, for my life. And I see this book dedicated in some ways as a prerequisite to any project that we care about, the theme, uh, which is that, you know, anything that we care about that we want to advance in society takes time. And it requires us to embark on long hauls. And uh, that's, uh, that's why I wrote this book. And so I'm, you are around 30 years old, right? Yep. So when you say you've been at this for 10 years, you started while you were in college. Yeah, you know, I've been very, I had this moment where I was taken by a series of heroes and influencers that totally lit my heart on fire. Um, one was Robert Putnam, who wrote this amazing book, Bowling I, Alone. Yeah, absolutely. That was a big and book that, in my own that history. was like, amen, yes. It, and, you know, churches are a great example of a community, not only just about faith, but also about gathering people and bringing them together and weaving together people. Um, and that was a before and after moment for me reading that book. You know, the book is about, you know, it over the last half century or so, there's been, it's a series of graphs. He's in a way a, a graph prophet of sorts. And that yeah. <laughs> he, he brings together all these social science charts to show that there actually has been a decline in you know, neighbor to neighbor interaction, community groups, civic engagement. Uh, the other was um, Ralph Nader, uh, not necessarily for what happened in 2000, but for his work in the 70s uh, in doing a series of public interest crusades. And that got me really turned on to the idea of what does it mean to fight for the public interest? What does it mean to, you know, exert our role? The organization he started was called Public Citizen. What does it mean to be a public citizen? And he lit my heart on fire for this idea of that we not only have a role as, you know, neighbors, we don't just have a role as fathers and brothers and sisters and daughters and the like. Uh, we don't just have a role as friends or workers in our employees in our job. We also have a role as citizens of our cities and states and country and, and the world. And um, that those two uh, kind of folks really influenced me and set me going on this course. So give me a sense of um, <clears throat> who you are by way of your background. Where are you from? Who are your people? What was your religious perspective? Tell me about that. Yeah, I write about this uh, in the book. I wanted to bring a bit of myself into it, which is that I am uh, from, I am from uh, on one side of my family, on my dad's side, a long line of, of Jews. Um, and then on the other side, from my mom's side, a long line of Irish Catholics. And, um, and, and so guilty I, by default, right? Guilty yes, by and, default. and I, I talk about the sign I saw in a St. Louis pub yeah. uh, that said guilt uh, invented by Jews, perfected by Catholics. And yeah. I talk about in the book how that, um, right. 
that, you know, that in some ways that does take the neurotic side in my family. We're always wondering if we wronged someone, but at its best, um, that, uh, that sense is this idea of, you know, being implicated that we're, uh, that we are weaved into a larger story where we're part of something bigger than ourselves that we are accountable to. Um, and I had a real moral upbringing, you know, my parents, talked about these ideas a lot. Um, you know, they, my dad was, uh, activist anthropologist. Um, he helped and, and that was a major formative aspect of my growing up was kind of witnessing him do his work. He, you know, before the sixties or so, most anthropologists, when they, they would, you know, the way that you would be an anthropologist was you'd go off to some foreign land, study some foreign people, bring back some masks or something and talk about how interesting they were. Um, and everyone would sit there and go, hmm, very fascinating. Um, and, uh, and what he was part of was this movement called public interest anthropology um, in the sixties that, and seventies and continuing on that said, the role of an anthropologist shouldn't just be to study culture. It should also be to help empower and raise up the voices and bring to the table um, the types of indi the indigenous communities that you are engaging with in your studies. Um, and so he was part of this uh, indigenous rights and empowerment movement over the last 50 years. And so he himself was a, a long haul hero that I, I got to witness firsthand while growing up. Did you grow up religiously per se? Yeah, I um, I have been a practicing Catholic most of my life, and and still am. And so I um, that is even though I'm still very uh, I still am deeply proud of uh, my cultural uh, being uh, culturally Jewish. I I um, I'm practicing Catholic, and I uh, and I've gotten really into you know I've I've had that develop over the last ten years you know getting into the stories of Dorothy Day who started the Catholic Worker Movement in New York your your yes, in your stomping yes. grounds mm -hmm. and you know been very inspired by the uh, you know the radical Christian tradition of you know the the deeper writings of Martin Luther King but beyond the caricature we just see um, and in the uh, on TV. Um, you know, the writings about what it means to really, what does it mean if we really practice true, you know, true Christian faith and built, you know, brought, you know, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in my language of, of the Catholic faith, you know, what if we had a more merciful society? What if we had a society that respected more human dignity? What if we had um, a society that, you know, tried to uh, bring in and foster grace more in our, in our world um, and, and, and the vir virtues like that and hospitality as well. Yeah. You know, you are probably well aware there's a sort of a large cultural conversation going on around what is it mean to be Christian in today's United States? And what does that look like? What is an authentic follower after the way of Jesus actually do? What are they about? What do they value? We don't have time really to unpack that, but maybe on a future conversation we can, <laughs> we can talk about that. But I'm wondering um, how has it impacted who you are as a as a man today? You know, I uh, there's a lot of ways. One is the reason I care about the civic projects that I care about is I feel in some ways the project of deepening American democracy and solidarity 
um, is is the secular project of Christian values, you know, and that doesn't mean that only Christians can participate in it, but the way I experience it is the call to, you know, raise people up and have them have their ideas realized and have their voice be heard. Um, that idea of bringing the outside in and the downtrodden up, that is, that is, and the project of weaving us together. Um, I talk about in the book, Mercy, you know, this wonderful quote by Father James F. Keenan, that mercy is the willingness to enter into the chaos of others. And what is civics? What is the project of democracy and solidarity, if not being willing to enter into the chaos of others? So that's one part. It informs my public project on the, um, in, in society. The second is just on a personal life. It's always challenging me to, um, to, uh, to see the presence of God in the other, you know, I, I, it's actually the, the, I, I was very, very moved by this idea in uh, Lewis Hyde's The Gift that has really affected how I see my, my Christianity, which is, it said, you know, he has the section in this, his book, The Gift, where he talks about one way to conceive of community is that, you are closed off and you have the blood circulating on the inside, but then you have to have really rigid um, walls so that the blood kind of stays circulating inside and you can have, you know, he talks about it as this double law. There's a way you treat insiders and there's a way you treat outsiders and you have to treat outsiders ethically, but the insiders are really where you kind of give your love and community spirit and gift, gift culture. And he says the great, radicalism of Christianity is that we open up, you know, the, um, we open up the circulation of love and community to everyone. Um, and that's where you get this idea of the bleeding heart. Um, and it's, and it says, and he says, well, this is crazy. How can you feel love? How can you feel community with all? Um, and he says, and, but the way I've thought it is, well, that is crazy. It's not something that we can do alone. We have to have God's grace to be able to do it. And so in my day-to-day life, even outside of kind of lofty theoretical things and my political projects, I just try to constantly be thinking, you know, how can I open up my heart to who's right in front of me all the time? And how can I know that I can't do that alone? And I have to open myself up to God's grace to be able to be that walking version of community building. Martin Luther King talks about it too. And it really resonates with me. He says the, what we're trying to do is to have, you know, create community no matter what is trying to stop us. And, and we are just going to be relentless in how much we create community because, and God's going to be on our side and doing that. And when I feel I'm at my best and I feel I'm at my closest to uh, my Christian virtue is when I feel like, okay, even in this grocery store, when I'm really uh, feeling mad or even in this moment where I don't want to call the friend and stay connected, um, I try to turn towards God and say, okay, how can I keep, uh, how can I keep the bleeding heart going? Uh, and so, um, <laughs> this is all not, I, I, I'm sure you all can uh, speak to this much more profoundly than me, but that's how I experience it. Personally no, no, no. Life. But I would say that that says good in articulation and what the essence of the gospel is about as I could come up with. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, I sensed that, uh, as I was reading your book, that, that you had underpinnings of this, kind of expansive Christian idea of what the community 
of God looked like, which was everyone. And, um, and so I just wanted to plumb that a little bit. Um, so let's shift to your book and maybe in a, you know, why don't you give our listeners a thumbnail of what's this book about? What are you trying to say? Yeah, you know, this book, maybe the best way to talk about what I'm trying to say is how it came about. Yeah. Um, and which is that as I was growing up, I kept getting this message. I got it in college. I got it a lot in law school and we got it from older people. And then it started to be internalized among my peers, which was the message was keep your options open. Um, the most important thing is to prepare for the future stage, to not close doors for your future self. Take the job that will help you preserve the next job. Don't get tied down with that person or place you love because you don't know what's around the corner. And really important to me, don't speak too much about what you actually believe because that might close you off from, you know, some job in the future, some impact in the future. Always be waiting for the next stage. Um, and there were two things that kind of ate away at me. One was um, there are so many problems today. There's so many breaches to repair, you know, uh, systems to reform, causes to advance, communities to revive. And they aren't going to be advanced or repaired or reformed or revived by people who are keeping their options open. They need commitment. They need dedication. And when you look at the people who have created everything precious that we care about, in our personal lives and in society as a whole, when you when you look at um, you know the people that built the towns that we live in, when you look at the people that taught us, the mentors and teachers, when you look at the prophets who restored the integrity of different things, when you look at you know any of the reforms we care about, um, any of the institutions we hold dear, it's because someone in the past was committed. And those were the people, those long haul heroes that were earning re our respect. And so there's this huge disconnect where we're saying the things that need to be done and the people that are doing them and earning our respect are the ones who have totally ignored the advice that we're giving everyone. We're telling everyone, keep your options open. And yet the people that are changing everything and the things we need are more people to commit to particular things, particular places and communities, institutions and causes and crafts. And, um, and I wrote this book to try to rectify that, that divide, um, and say, you know, there are times in our life where it's okay to browse around, where it's okay to keep our options open, but eventually the path to purpose and community and impact and eventually joy and peace, um, is often the path over the fears of commitment through them to, um, and uh, in it's the path of the long haul. So uh, um, that was and the book is an exploration of all the, the aspects of that, why we're scared of making a commitment. What's it like to be on a commitment and what are the gifts that are on the other side of it? You know, before we get specifically into unpacking that side of it, um, <clears throat> why do you think how is it that it that you were you and everyone else was overwhelmed with this wisdom to keep your options open, work for the next job, don't get locked down. Where did that come from and why? I think there are a few things. You know, one is that um, 
One is that simply it's a technological story, which is, you know, there you wake up two centuries ago and there's hardly any options for anyone. Um, if I was telling you about like, oh, keep your options open, it's nice. It'd be nice to have a few options, you know, for <laughs> right. most people. Um, right. And there, um, you know, just think about how much, you know, just having the first radio come or the first car that makes traveling to the next town not a whole day affair or something. Um, suddenly, and suddenly you have all these possibilities in life flooding into you and all these ways you can go to other ways, you know, to skip town and start a whole new way of being. Um, and that's just been taken to like an almost exponential extreme in the last 30 years with the internet, where we literally can see and experience, you know, all the different ways we could be, all the different people, you know, with these dating apps, all the people you can swipe through in New York, all the different careers you could have, all the different places you could be, let alone all the fear of missing out where you see other people on these feeds, um, like experiencing something different than you while you're in the middle of a long haul. There's that part of it, just the technological story. Then there's, I think, a lot of cultural things too. You know, there's, um, there's, the fact that a lot of the stories we tell, and I think this is a very good thing, the goal of this book is to supplement this message, but a lot of the stories we tell are liberatory stories. It's a story of someone being forced into one way of being and liberating themselves to become something else. So the classic example I give in the book is this great musical and movie, Billy Elliot, you know, he's destined to become a coal miner, but he says, I want to dance ballet. And the great message of the movie is you're liberated from that option that was chosen from you. You can pick something else. You can do ballet. But the message I want to say is liberatory stories are one thing. They're very cinematic. They're very important. They're very important causes and continuing causes of liberation. But we need to also supplement that with cultural stories of dedication, which are much harder to tell. It's much easier to tell the one big brave moment. And it's much harder to tell a national story about someone who walked for 30 years fighting for something or someone who, you know, tended to an institution for 25 years, stuff like that. Then yeah. there's, you know, and this comes into our education a bit where, you know, we have less education for attachment, you know, education that says, you know, you're joining a profession, you're becoming, you have reverence and duty to some cause that we've taught you about or some field of knowledge that not only is something you learn for yourself, but implicates you and makes you responsible for using that knowledge for the public good. Um, and more education for advancement. You know, the point of education is to give you all the tools you need to keep your options open basically and, and be able to do anything. And this is all without mentioning the economic story, which is, you know, it's easy for some to say, Oh, we're all voluntarily job hopping when 50 million people are in the gig economy in America, uh, being forced from job to job, you know, corporations pulling out factories from towns and destroying them, you know, uh, beloved institutions being, um, being, uh, um, you know, eaten by our, our economic system. And, and it's very hard to hold on to particular things when these larger forces are always uh, liquefying them and flattening them and uh, mixing them up in mergers and acquisitions and the like. So um, there's a lot of factors, but uh, it's kind of all culminated in this experience of feeling like you have all these options, but maximizing choice, but minimizing satisfaction. Yeah. There was a you gave an example that sort of struck a nerve with me. It's a, 
So many of the things that you uh, <clears throat> share are small in scale, and yet if you extrapolate, they have large outcomes. This is an example of one of those things. Facebook once ran an ad that opens on a young person sitting with her grandmother at dinner. The grandmother is going on and on about something boring, so the grandkid looks down at her phone. The screen erupts with a drummer, a ballet dancer, and a snowball fight all playing out in the room in front of her as she scrolls. The message we're supposed to take away is, with Facebook, you don't have to be in the room with your family. Your phone is your ever-present escape hatch. Now, you were, you know, it's about distraction on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, it's a story that's much bigger in its outcome if, it, if you follow it through. Um, it struck me because <laughs> I am now a grandparent. I have two small grandchildren. And uh, I'm noticing the, um, the tug of war that takes place, even with little, little, little kids in the world of technology. And you link that with uh, William James, uh, who called the skill of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again, the very root of judgment, character, and will, which is so, so true and so, so boring in its own way, <laughs> very unsexy. And yet the root of very uh, important knowledge and a continuing stream of character development, right? Um, go ahead. Yes. You know, I there's two things on this. One is that um, we often think about this as a short attention span, but yeah. what a short attention span or, you know, it's distraction, but it's also like a, it becomes a short commitment span in yes. the sense that it's not just that we're all trying to read long articles and then suddenly, you know, the cell phone beeps and we get distracted. That's one thing about a short attention span. What it eventually becomes, which I think is much worse, is you give up on the idea of doing anything that's a sustained length. So it's not just while you're watching the two-hour movie, you get distracted by a text. It's that you say, oh, I'm never going to watch a two-hour movie again. Or, you know, and and we stop making two-hour movies or we stop making longer books because I don't want to ever read a book or something yeah. like that. And And one of the things I like telling people to remember is think about the times that you did commit to some, even on the small level of like media, you know, you spend one day where you watch that one documentary on, you know, the samurai or something, or you read that one book or you spend the summer just learning everything about the topic, or you read that one book that really affects you. You think about it 10 years later, it like pays complete dividends to go deep on something. But you don't remember the entirety of like all the tweets you read last year, the entirety of all the TikToks you saw um, in the last year, even though if you added them all together, it would be much longer than reading. You know, you could read 20 books for all the tweets and headlines you read during a year, or you could watch, you know, 20 movies for all the TikToks you stream through a year. And one of them leads to much more long-term joy and impact than the other. And um, that's let alone, you know, that's just media. That's not even hitting the major thing, which is let alone if you take some time to just have a little bit of sustained attention through the boring story of your grandma or grandpa, you might discover, you know, you might build a relationship that you're 
you'll think about for the rest of your life. Um, and that, you know, you might fear of missing out on the, you know, the, the marching band or the, the random pictures on the beach you could be scrolling through, but you know, and you're like, Oh, I only live once. I don't want to be listening to this boring story, but you know, you could also flip it the other way and say, you only live once. You only have, you know, two grandmas or something, you know? (laughs) Um, and if you miss out on that, that's the real thing you should be fearing missing out on. Um, um, and I'm using, you know, grandma and grandpa. I, right. I always like uh, clarifying, you know, or whatever older mentor means a lot to you. So, yeah. you know, I don't want to yeah. say, you know, everyone's grandma and grandpa's the 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 best to them, but but uh, some form of an elder that is taking uh, is um, uh, is means a lot if you if you put in the time. Yeah, Pete. Earlier, I really appreciate you addressing some of the hedges that are definitely in the way for millennials because when I initially hear people say. People need to be more committed. They need to commit to one thing and stick with it. I'm reminded of the many things that millennials have faced, including financial crises and going to school for jobs that you can now do on a phone or a laptop. A lot of millennials that I know chose a path, but it just didn't work out. So now keeping your options open and lack of commitment is kind of just baked in for those of us that went through all of that. Yep. You know, one of the, one of the, uh, when people ask me, oh, what is one of the stories? How do you, do we have like more keeping our options open than we did 50 years ago or something? I often point to this very solid social science polling data that says people in our generation relative to people in the older generation are much less trusting of institutions larger than ourselves. We're much less trusting of organized religion, of you know, uh, all various types of civic institutions, political parties, nations, um, the idea of, you know, patriotism, you know, things like this. Um, and, um, and, uh, the government and the like, and part of one might read me bringing that up as saying, oh, this is all the young people's fault. And I'm like a, a young person trader finger wagging at my fellow young people saying, oh, why are you so selfish? Why did you give up on believing in things bigger than yourself? But I actually think the opposite. I think the biggest part of that story of decline in trust is that the institutions betrayed us in many ways, Um, whether purposefully or by the circumstance of just not existing anymore, declining Mm. and not being in the role that they were when we started. Um, But my message of this book is to say, you know, having a Pollyanna-ish belief in these institutions and believing in them despite the fact that they might be betraying you or be unjust or something like that is definitely not good. But it's also not good to give up on the idea of having things bigger than ourselves at all. And a world of kind of, you know, a gothic world of showing up anyway to a, you know, to a job or an institution or religion or politics that doesn't treat you well is really dark, but it's also really dark to have a world where we're all completely isolated individuals and do nothing together and have no kind of mission-driven organizations. And the message of this book is kind of a message to say, I see you, you know, I hear you, I'm one of you um, in this desert, you know, where so many things are corrupted and so many, so much of community is in decline and so many problems are on the, you know, are deepening. Um, But we have to kind of perform a somewhat miraculous thing, which is despite the fact that 
committing to things might have not done us well in the past if we want to give our kids or ourselves in the future any of these things we care about, you know, any mission-driven institution, any type of community and purpose and depth, um, we need to start sowing the seeds um, and we have to do it anyway. You know, we have to still find a way to believe in places. We have to still find a way to believe in causes and projects. We have to still find a way of stewarding these beautiful, the best of these beautiful traditions while excising the parts that um, we have discovered to not work or reviving and rectifying the parts that aren't working. Um, and um, so it's a message of kind of in the desert, uh, let's sow some seeds. You know, the poem I end with is, is Wendell Berry's, you know, uh, which I, which I love, which, uh, you know, worth quoting. Um, in the, in the dark of the moon, in flying snow, in the dead of winter, war spreading, families dying, the world in danger, I walk the rocky hillside sowing clover. And that's the message of this book. You know, it's not a Pollyanna-ish thing that it's not dark, there's not snow, it's not that it's not winter, <laughs> but nevertheless, we not that the hillside is rocky, but nevertheless, we must find a way to still sow clover. Yeah. You know, the thing is, that has always struck me about <clears throat> this conversation, particularly with the decline of institutions. Uh, and I'm a, I agree with you that institutions are their own worst enemies or have been. Um, often, often that is the case. Sometimes they just get old and, and uh, stale and cranky and need to be rebirthed and reformed or, or destroyed and start over again as well. But the fact is, if if anyone is committed, <clears throat> excuse me, to accomplishing some good over time, it inevitably requires an institutional framework, a mission-driven institutional framework that's larger than my own person. If I want to accomplish some good over time, you know, a GoFundMe campaign might do fine for a friend in crisis. But the fact is, you can't cure cancer through GoFundMe campaigns. You've got to start committed today and over the long haul. And 30 years from now, you may find after diligent commitment to solving the problem that you've got some advance on curing it, right? Amen. You know, I, I was really happy I got to put into the book this idea, this old idea of prophecy, you know, I think when people hear the word prophet, they think predicting the future, you yeah, know, um, yeah. it's someone who has like clairvoyance, but you know, as, as y'all know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, um, uh, <laughs> the, the old sense of prophecy is, is someone who calls us back to our values and revives the mission at the center of communities. It's, you know, in sometimes it's when the community becomes too rigid, when you're just going through the motions of ritual, absent of meaning, living meaning, they're the ones that, you know, bring about new practices that are alive with renewed spirit. And in other times, often in our time, when the communities have become too diffuse, when it's like a bunch of discordant voices and what Daniel Bell called the babble of contradictory beliefs becoming intolerable, prophets convene people and cohere meanings into a new uh, living whole. And, um, but what do all these prophets have in common? What does all this work have in common? They still believe in like in something, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, I talk about in the book, prophet Isaiah, he says, 
you know, uh, you know, he in one breath, he's decrying like the hypocritical fasting. He's decrying, you know, you're fasting only to quarrel, you're fasting and then you're striking with a wicked fist. But then in the next breath, he doesn't say that means we all got to quit. It's all a sham. He says you could be the rebuilders of ancient ruins. You could be the restorers of homes. You could be giving us one of the best phrases um, out there today, uh, repairers of the breach. Yes. And you disrupt in order to restore. And I, one of my messages is like, yeah, we can call a spade a spade on some things, but it eventually has to end with some version of restoration, some version of rejuvenation, some version of revival. Um, uh, And, uh, we got to balance our, our, we got to supplement our, we got to finish the two step between liberating ourselves from old commitments and dedicating ourselves to revived ones. And, um, and, uh, and you know, pairing our liberation with dedication, I think has had a powerful uh, legacy and we got to continue it into a new generation. Couldn't agree more. You know, in the, in fact, in the section in your book on mission, uh, just again, a, a, a brief uh, sharing here. Um, when we're increasingly averse to making commitments, when everyone must be free to do their own thing, institutions give up on the idea of having a shared moral culture or a shared set of expectations for participants. In place of morality, they substitute neutrality. I thought that was a really insightful way to say the problem, describe the problem. What this often looks like in practice is a shift in focus from advancing a particular mission to pronouncing efficiency. In mission-driven institutions, leaders see their goal as guiding everyone towards serving the institution's mission. This means constantly talking about the mission, celebrating people who advance it, so on and so forth. Um, What's intriguing to me about this is, and Brandon can attest, we were just having this conversation in a staff meeting about, let's pull back and look at what is the essential obligation? What is our essential mission? at Christ Church. And we're asking this question in a season in which the church writ large is crumbling in many of its forms right now. At Christ Church, our mission is we seek to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. Extremely simple, stripped down to the nubs. And yet I have felt all along that it was so important to have the mission so clear cut, so essential that everyone who associates with the organization knows what the what our primary purpose is, and that is to love very well. We've got to learn how to love. And it was in, I was so struck by your articulating this conversation about mission because I think that that conversation is missing missing broadly in our culture right at the moment. I'm I'm so glad you called out that section. It's one of my, you know, I poured my heart into that part of it because yeah. I experienced it in law school um, uh, where it was such an example of a neutral institution instead of a moral institution. The law has a mission statement. It's, it's, uh, it's equal justice under law and the rule of law. The two jobs of lawyers is to make sure we have the rule of law, not men, and to make sure that in that rule of law, there's equal justice for everyone under law. Both of those are in, and the purpose of a law school is to train people in that mission. Um, it's so, it's very clear. They carve it on the, they carve it on the, um, the uh, buildings, you know, a hundred years ago. And yet when we were doing, you know, courses on professional development, 
there was almost no discussion of that mission. And in our courses and in the hallways and in the career discussions and in the events that were coming, there was almost no discussion of that mission. It was all about, you know, how can you be the smartest person or how can you get the most fancy jobs or look at this person who, you know, is able to be in these powerful rooms. And anytime you tried to talk about that mission, you were seen as kind of um, like you, you were seen as like an alien or something. What are you doing yeah. talking about this thing? Um, and like, it's not our job to tell people what to do. Um, and, um, that is, I just so experienced such an example of a place where the fire had gone out and the, um, and you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a real shame and it has serious consequences. You know, it results when a profession no longer has that the mission starts faltering and there is less rule of law and less equal justice under law and less watchdogging and, um, kind of fire in the bellies of the students to uh, to achieve that when you've given up on that. And so that's just my personal example, but you can kind of see it everywhere. And um, it's so heartening to hear um, stories of folks. And I really wanted to highlight stories of folks in the book who have, who take really seriously, who say, you know, it might sound, uh, it might sound saccharine. It might sound, um, you know, it might sound rose-colored glasses to still believe we can kind of sit in a room and talk about what's the mission of our institution and believe it can have a difference. But one of my message, messages of this book is like, we we have to do that anyway. And um, and yeah. it has powerful consequences. And um, and not doing it has serious consequences when, you know, it, it um, you might not see it as, you know, you might not see it in these day-to-day incidents as the lack of that you know, as the consequences of that decision to not kind of tend to the moral fire at the center of an institution, but it's behind a lot of this, um, a lot of what I think is kind of the acrimony and the languishing um, in a lot of institutions. I think it leads to the kind of apathy that I see from a lot of my peers, you know, when it comes to institutions, when it comes to politics, when it becomes to anything. It's like when you don't have that core mission behind the things that you do i just feel like you you just become apathetic to everything and non-participatory and just kind of like i think looking at the world today sometimes i think it's easy to feel defeated and like you can't make a difference but i think like reading some of your book this past week i was like wow like i think you've identified one of the biggest issues is that we need that to let us have hope in changing these institutions that we don't have faith in, you know? Amen. And it, and it's a, it's a virtuous or a vicious cycle. You know, we are formed by our institutions. It's not like we're static and our institutions can respond in whatever way. It's when an institution is neutral and says, we don't care what you do. You shouldn't care what we do. Just follow the rules, you know, the rigid rules that creates a more individualistic people in how they engage. And then when the time comes and they really need people to step up, they don't find anyone stepping up and they're like, Oh gosh, what happened? But, um, you know, and it, and then they start, you know, becoming more and more like catering to that individualism. But when you do the opposite, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. When you start saying, we expect more of you, you know, we want, we're all in this together to fulfill a purpose. People start learning the art 
of they cultivate the virtues of purposeful action. They cultivate the virtues of community. They uh, cultivate the virtues of depth. And then it becomes easier and easier to like have a mission driven organization. And then they're the ones wanting to come to the meetings and talk about, um, you know, talk about how we can deepen the mission more. And then it, and then the, the institution's able to go even further. And then the people be, are able to, you know, uh, help even more. And then it's able to go further. And, and, you know, it's, it's these cycles of kind of decline and, and, and revival that, that happen. And, and one of my messages, the book even is that even if you feel like it's a desert um, in your profession or in your institution, you'll be surprised by if you have a little moment of prophecy where you say, here's a way we could, a tiny moment where we could do things a little better or be a little more mission driven or be a little more clearer in what we're doing. You'll be surprised by what it brings out in people. Cause I think in the end, we do have a hunger for that. We have a hunger for purpose and community and depth and joy. Um, and, uh, and so my, my, my big nudge with this book is be the first mover you know, even if it, it'll bring out, it'll bring it, the spirit out in other people too. You know, I was also uh, struck Pete with the, um, your conversation about honor culture and that leads into a, a concern for a lack of public conversation about character and what, what, where is character formation happening? And as our institutions are crumbling, um, I think that attention to the actual building up of character uh, is also <laughs> crumbling. Amen. And, you know, part of what that section was inspired by was that the, you know, this old John Dewey idea that the school is the whole community. You know, it's not that the way you learn, the best way to learn things is not like sitting in a classroom and reading about it. The best right. way to learn things is to have that education baked into all the institutions in the neighborhood. Um, and so if we want to have character education, there's one way to do it, which is you, you know, you read books, you know, books that are on my <laughs> part of the shelf, you know, with yeah. this that tell you, you know, here's a good virtue, but the, you know, and that's going to have an effect on some people who are already into that stuff, you know, people who like reading these types of books, but the deeper way to have that character education is to part of what I said with honor culture is an honor culture in some ways is a culture where character education is baked into everything. And what are the places where we talk about character? Well, we talk about them at, um, we have award ceremonies every year. We have, or, you know, or we have holidays where we celebrate things. We have festivals where we talk about, you know, that we're going to hold this up. We have, um, you know, I talk about one of the small things towns can do is start a local hall of fame where you hold up long haul heroes and, you know, take kids on tours through that hall of fame to tell them about these different stories. Um, you have ceremonies of transition where, you know, at a f you you have funerals where you talk about the virtues of the person who died. You have weddings where you talk about the virtues of of um, of committed relationships. You have births where you talk about you know baptisms where you talk about what it means to be a person that enters into this existence and 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 what we hope for people. Um, and you have cultures of mentorship um, and age integration where 
not all the ages sit at different tables. You have them sit at the same table so that old people can learn from the prophecy of the young and yeah. young people can learn from the wisdom of the old. And, um, and, um, and, yeah. uh, and that's, that's what we have to have instead of an indifference culture where everyone says you do you, I do me. If you don't bother me, you're good. If I don't bother you, I'm good. <laughs> um, yeah. That just isn't going to take us very far, is it? <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. I notice you have another obligation. Uh, Brandon, anything else on your mind before we uh, thank Pete for his I time? I would say my, my last question, and you can give a quick answer, is you know we're an institution that's about to invite people back, right? To invite people to be a part of what we're doing uh, we've been closed for, you know, since COVID started and we're about to open back up. And like, how do, how do we as an institution prepare to invite people to come back to be involved with us and be committed to us? I, you know, I, I'll, I'll say two things about this. One concrete and one a little more um, abstract. The concrete thing is, I think we, I talk about this in the book, is I think we have to acknowledge the fears people have of commitment. And we have to say, you know, if you want to rejoin our community, you know, you might have the fear of regret. You might have wanted to join another community and you might have that fear and trepidation. You might have the fear of missing out. Um, you know, if you commit to come into this thing every week or for some of the more dedicated people, you know, twice a week, some of the others even more, um, you might, not be able to do everything and be with everyone and be everywhere on those days that you've committed to an obligation. Um, and you might have most importantly, the fear of association, building community with others is messy. Other people aren't exactly like you. No institution can cater exactly to your characteristics. Um, and you might have that fear, but I want to, I think institutions that ask people to be brave and say that on, you know, if you can be brave and um, on the other side of that fear of regret, there's us, you know, there's the power of purpose. And on the other side of that fear of missing out, there's the joy of depth. And on the other side of that fear of association, there's the comfort of community. Um, it's waiting for you. And we're asking, you know, this is a moment where you can come together and be brave and overcome that and be that alternative. Um, I think kind of acknowledging that reality of the fears we have, well, you know, issuing a challenge and, and talking about the gifts on the other side of it, um, can really move people. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I, I think I'll end with this, which is that, you know, I, I, uh, talk about in this, um, the people that are building this counterculture of commitment are, are folks like you two. Um, and I'm so grateful. And the people that are listening to this right now who say, I want to be close to this uh, community at Christ Church NYC. And so um, I just want to express gratitude to you too for uh, being long haul heroes yourself of uh, committing to this community of people and doing your part of kind of weaving together a corner of our, of our, uh, of our country. And, and um, the two feelings, my favorite question I've gotten during this tour of the book is what feelings do you want to evoke in people after they've read this book? And um, one of my feelings is encouragement. You know, the book is like a nudge. If you're 70% there on something, I hope this book can nudge you to go all in. Um, and, but the other one is gratitude, which is, I think, the first step to 
you know, really building and raising up this counterculture of commitment over this, you know, age of infinite browsing is to express, to notice the long haul heroes that are all around us. And I'd like to end this by noticing uh, what y'all doing as part of that. So I'm, I'm grateful. And, um, and I challenge any listeners to express their gratitude to the folks that are the long haul heroes in their life. Pete, thanks very much. A great way for you to end for our sakes, and we appreciate it. We also wish you well, and I hope that your work blossoms and flourishes. Um, We'd like to stay in touch and uh, track your progress. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you both reading and telling people about the book. Yes. Thanks, Pete. Be well. Thank you.